Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get to my interview with China expert Robert Sutter, just a brief reminder, folks, if you haven't yet filled out the Libsyn survey, Politics Guys survey, it would be really helpful if you did. I promise you it will take you 30 seconds, maybe a minute if you've got slow thumbs and you're doing it on your phone, which you probably will, but it would be a big help to us. And again, to, to find that, it's uh, survey.libsyn.com slash politicsguys. That's Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And I will also have that uh, URL in the show notes. Thanks very much. My guest today is Dr. Robert Sutter, a professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of George Washington University. Dr. Sutter has worked both in government and in academia, including positions with the CIA, State Department, and Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's published 20 books, over 200 articles, and several hundred government reports dealing with contemporary East Asian and Pacific countries and their relations with the United States. Dr. Sutter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You've been studying China for a long time now, which I think gives you a depth of knowledge and a perspective that's, well, sometimes in some media accounts can be lacking, I think. Uh, and so I'd like to start with a little bit of historical context about the United States' relationship with China. Uh, for most of the post-World War II era, I think Americans saw the Soviet Union as the primary strategic rival. And there was some concern about Japan, we could see in, starting in the 1980s. But really, in the 21st century, I think it's China that's generally been seen as the main rival to the United States. So could you talk a little bit about how that happened? I think it's a matter of power. Um, China was, uh, has become a very powerful country. Um, it has uh, ambitions that uh, not, are not in line with U.S. interests. Those are longstanding. Um, you talked about the past. Uh, I go back a bit. Uh, and, uh, and so when you do that, you find periods when the United States looked at China with intense hostility. Uh, it really wasn't so long ago that we looked at Mao Zedong in the way that we often looked at uh, the leaders of North Korea today. Uh, a very dangerous country uh, when and they got nuclear weapons in 1964 uh, and uh, and this is alarming to the United States uh, unclassified documents that uh, declassified documents show that Robert Kennedy uh, during the Kennedy administration was considering striking at China to prevent it from developing nuclear weapons so this, this is so this is the kind of attitude we had toward China at that time uh, it passed with Nixon's opening, but things were not benevolent at all. There were hundreds of thousands of Chinese serving in Vietnam uh, during the war. And so Americans knew that and uh, were worried about it. Um, and so the, the, the record is a little mixed. But the basic point, I think, is that uh, the, the reason we're concerned with China today is that it is so powerful. In a, in a, it seems so powerful in a variety of different ways. Uh, and it seems intent uh, on challenging the United States in a whole range of areas. 
now it seems to me that a lot of this in some in some can be linked to China becoming part of the world economic community with getting into the the WTO and that was I believe what 2001 I think and from Correct. that point on when when I take a look at charts of Chinese economic growth rates it's it's essentially almost flatline and then in the early 21st century things really start to take off it seems mm-hmm. Well, the takeoff began in the late in the early 1990s, actually, and uh, they were growing. They've been growing average 10 percent a year since the early 1990s. Uh, uh, but we noticed it a lot more after WTO because they traded a lot more. Uh, and so, in that period, in the 19 in that first decade, uh, their growth rate was over 10 percent a year, and their trade growth was over 20 percent a year. Wow. And so those numbers, sometimes people will see numbers coming from more closed societies and say, well, wait a second, can we trust those numbers? Do you have, do you have any sense about whether that economic data is reasonably accurate? I think it's reasonably accurate. I mean, there are obviously things that are changed in one way or another over the years, but uh, I think the economists look at this and in general, they, they think this is in line with what they think is going on. The World Bank and the IMF uh, look at this pretty carefully, and they they're in line with this. I don't have grave doubts about these figures, and the and the demonstration of this is in China itself. They've just remade all the major cities of China. They're just totally different than what they were. There is a lot of concern. I mean, President Trump, among others, actually is very concerned about our trade deficit with China. And of course, China is the main foreign holder of U.S. debt. Uh, I just looked it up at the Treasury Department. I think $1.17 trillion. And Japan is kind of right around there at about a trillion dollars. But and right. you know China's GDP growth, even though it's been down recently, it still looks to me around six to seven percent, which is around three times or so what U.S. GDP growth has been lately. So it makes me wonder how serious of an economic threat does China pose to the United States, in your view? Well, I think it does oppose a, a threat to the United States if it follows through on its desires. Uh, on its intentions that are challenging the United States. Uh, I think growth itself is not a, a big problem at all. Uh, it's the way the Chinese carry out their economic behavior that's gotten the attention of the United States. And now we have reached a point where China is very competitive with the highest end technology type of industries and uh, enterprises of the United States. Uh, and according to the U.S. government, at least, uh, they view this as a fundamental national security threat. This is in the Trump administration's national security strategy. They see this as uh, emblematic of China taking control of the high-end industries uh, that the United States relies on for international leadership. And if that happens, China will dominate those industries and uh, by the logic of this report, uh, will dominate international affairs. And this is not what they want to see. So the danger isn't so much the trade deficit. The danger is how the Chinese are funneling these uh, reserves and how what they're and what they're doing with them uh, in uh, really it's a technology type of issue rather than a uh, trade deficit type of issue. Is it that sounds to me like the assumption is that this is, at least in this area, sort of a zero-sum game where 
There, yes. I mean, is that is that a reasonable way to look at it? Because there are some who would say, well, international trade doesn't at least doesn't have to be a zero sum game. And our relationship with China doesn't have to follow that one wins, one loses type of type of idea. I think uh, what one needs to do in that situation is just look at the behavior of the government that you're talking about. And uh, and if you see the government practicing this zero sum type of competition, uh, then uh, then you have something to worry about. And I think in the case of China, uh, the government is uh, is correct in looking at China in a way that says this could be a very well. They they look at China as predatory is the way they look at it. They uh, and uh, in this regard, and I think that's accurate. Uh, they want to be dominant in these areas. Uh, whether they are or not is not, I can't tell. Uh, but the intent, I think, is pretty clear. And uh, and once they're dominant, well, how will they treat you? Well, the uh, the logic goes a little further. If you're critical of China, you say, well, how do they treat their people? Uh, how do they treat their neighbors with whom they have disputes? That's how you'll be treated. And so the U.S. government uh, says we don't want that. Yeah, that's a good point. There's another way to look at this. Though. I mean, there are some people who say, my gosh, China just seems to be this unstoppable force. But but it seems to me there are at least a couple of factors that maybe push back against that. Number one, China has some pretty serious problems with corruption, uh, according to the various groups. And even though their GDP has gone up considerably. I mean, uh, when we take a look at GDP per capita, China is somewhere in the, the like the 70s worldwide. I mean, it's mm-hmm. well behind yes. Western Europe and the U.S. and Japan. And so yep. mm-hmm. I wonder how much do you think corruption and poverty are to China's continued emergence as a world economic power? Uh, I think I think you've put, point, put your finger on two very important elements that need to be dealt with uh, of when one considers how powerful China actually is. Um, in my judgment, this and several other factors make the Chinese leaders very internally preoccupied. Uh, they deal with uh, their hold on power. They look powerful, but their uh, their hold on power doesn't have any inherent legitimacy other than good performance. And if they don't perform well, if they have a big problem of some one sort or another, uh, they may be in some uh, difficulty. And so they worry about this, internal security. Uh, they spend so much on internal security. Uh, they spend a lot on their national defense, but they spend more on internal security, trying to keep tabs of their people and so forth, because of their, they feel very insecure and they need to do this. So uh, this is a drag on their economy. It's a drag on their leadership. Uh, and there are many other aspects that you would you can look at. And I guess one point that we may come when we start talking about economics, we'll come to this at some point, is that the Chinese are following a model that we've seen before. This is the Japan model. This is the Taiwan, South Korea, and others used it. And China is, use, is using it. But it, reach, it reaches a point of diminishing returns. And when it does, if you're not careful, you become like Japan. And Japan really hasn't grown at all significantly since the 1990s. And uh, uh, it was growing 10% a year for quite a while, uh, but it's not anymore. And uh, the Chinese face that uh, uh, because they're following the same model and it reaches the point of diminishing returns. 
Yeah, I wanted to actually well, let's talk about that a, a little bit okay. and that that export driven model. And if I understand it correctly, what that essentially means is to change to kind of rebalance, they'd need to open up a lot more to imports and they'd need to actually uh, well lower prices in their domestic market. So by being export driven, correct, it's sort of more difficult for their for their uh, native population there and but it's easier for, for exports and at, after a certain point I would imagine as the Chinese middle class grows there are going to be a lot more people who are a lot more interested in in consumer goods and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. that seems to me to be a pretty tricky transition yes it is it is and I think what they have to do and I'm not an economist and so I'm going to give you a non-economist explanation of this but I certainly watched Japan and how they did it uh, and uh, and looking at China uh, they have to build up a domestic consumption now they can do this with the wealthy middle class uh, but there's so many constraints on this because the Chinese don't have an effective pension system they don't have an effective uh, even their schooling has to be paid for in a variety of ways, uh, and they don't have an effective health care system. And so people have to save for these sorts of things because if they need it for schooling or health care or pensions, uh, they have to have it on their own. And so to do that, they save. And yet the saving rate, the interest rate that people get in China is well below the market rate. The government, this is where all the capital that gets poured into state-owned enterprises in China comes from, is the fact that uh, the government basically takes this profit uh, because they pay low interest rates to the people, the depositors. They don't even keep pace with their, with their cost of living. Uh, and they use that money for all these enterprises, funneling the money into it in a way that will compete with the United States. And so, uh, but if you do that, you're constant, you, you don't have a domestic consumption base. The people don't have the money to buy the things that you want them to buy, uh, to have a domestically driven economy. And that's where they're at. And they haven't been able to change that very well. They have a whole series of plans beginning in 2013, but they really haven't done it uh, very much at all because it uh, changes the way it changes interest. There are interests th that are involved in perpetuating this system. And so for now, the Japanese model is perpetuated in China, which is bad for them over the long term. And they know it, uh, and, uh, but they can't seem to change it. In in terms of the sort of the mechanism to changing this, I mean, I know that recently, well, at least it seems like to me that Xi Jinping has essentially kind of tried to set himself up to be, well, I don't know if you call it the dictator is too strong, but, but maybe. Um, and I think some people would say, well, this makes sense in a way because it will allow the, uh, the government to take sort of the steps it needs to take without having to worry about a lot of popular blowback like in a democracy and pursue these kind yeah. of, you know, longer term strategies. But on the other hand, I'm wondering if it makes them uh, too inflexible to do certain things like that. Well, what do you think about that? My thought is it, it, the main issue seems to be among the elite, among the leaders. In other words, uh, do you follow this this other model? Uh, but that would uh, undermine the interest of certain leaders in the in the administration, in the government, in the party. And the re result is there's resistance and uh, passive or otherwise uh, to moving in this direction. Now, Xi, Xi Jinping himself 
uh, he seems to be very much a control guy. He wants to control things. Well, if you want to control things, then you keep the money in the state-owned enterprises. You you sustain the, the existing system. And uh, that means you don't do these economic reforms, which would be mm, free up the market and uh, give more leeway to free enterprise and so forth. And so uh, my sense is, uh, yes, he has more control because he's uh, he can stay in longer. Uh, and yes, he is a powerful figure. Uh, but is he moving in the right direction in this regard? I think he gives a premium to control, party control, and uh, and not to uh, uh, market-driven uh, economic growth. And he needs more market-driven economic growth. Right. I've read stories from time to time about how he's trying to uh, cut down, to crack down on corruption and so forth. And whenever I see these stories, I wonder, is this actually an anti-corruption move or is this a way to consolidate power and take out his rivals and that sort of thing? Or maybe it's some combination of the two. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the corruption problem and how it's maybe being used? I think the corruption problem has been, uh, as you noted in your earlier question, it is a serious problem. It is a serious preoccupation. Uh, it's a serious problem in a lot of countries. Um, in the United States, we have some corruption, but we don't. We don't. If we don't interact with these other countries, you don't get a sense of how bad it is in so many other places. And it is pretty bad in all over the world. And China is no exception. Uh, it's, it's just the, it has a, endemic, a very widespread cor uh, corruption. Uh, and they are trying to <clears throat> do something about it. And he's actually doing quite a bit. Uh, but in the process, as you say, he's using this weapon uh, to uh, to intimidate uh, his uh, colleagues uh, in the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, this means that uh, you just uh, don't cross Mr. Xi Jinping. Otherwise, you'll be investigated for corruption. And you probably have some in your background uh, because the, the system inherently the system seems to have an awful lot of corruption. I think it'd be very hard to be a senior leader in China and not have some corruption in your background. And do you think that that just is inherent in the type of government that they have? Or is it maybe in part a question of the fact that China is so large and I would imagine difficult to govern and monitor, at least in especially outlying areas or, or some combination of those things? Yeah, I think it's a combination. I, I think it's uh, it's certainly a feature of the system because you uh, you depend on your your evaluations from your supervisors. You don't have uh, a recourse uh, easily in the courts or something for an injustice that's done to you. So you need to get along within the system, and to get along within the system to get your promotion and get your recognition and so forth. You've got to make sure that the people that you work for are very happy with you, and uh, and that leads to corruption and uh, and it becomes uh, and it's an old an old feature of China with the the Manchu dynasty and the previous dynasties. They had an awful lot of corruption too, and so it was a, a sort of systematic of of uh, of the society, and uh, and so that's a feature that hasn't gone away and uh, and it uh, comes back and uh, and that's where they are with it so uh, it helps explain why it continues and uh, why it has become so pervasive and you just don't have public oversight you don't have a media that can really go after this they do they do have some leeway in China to go after corruption now uh, but in general you didn't have this 
And you just don't have this sense that the government is responsible to the people. The government is basically responsible to the party. And the party is the people, uh, at least in the context of an American. What, what is the ultimate source of authority? Well, in China, it's really the party uh, and the members of the party. It's not the people per se. So you as an individual, uh, you can make charges against corruption, but it's really hard to get recourse uh, uh, in any way similar to what you could do, say, in a country like the United States. Well, it seems to me then that that's a fundamental difference between, say, China and countries like uh, South Korea and Japan, who pursued a sort of a similar economic growth patterns. In South Korea and Japan, there was some established rule of law, and people could believe that the system, you know, would would work for them if they raised a complaint or so forth. And and China would would need to move in that direction as well, right? If they wanted to, if they wanted to open up their markets and, and make those kind of economic system changes as well. I guess so. Um, I, and I wouldn't uh, exaggerate the absence of corruption in places like South Korea and Japan, particularly in the past. Uh, these large enterprises that had big control and influence in the government, I'm not sure how you would characterize this, but there was sort of the one hand was doing it was was patting the back of the uh, of the one partner and the other partner, the government and the and the companies, the very large companies were together, and uh, and so you know the president of uh, of uh, Samsung he was indicted recently for corruption and uh, and I think this happens in in these kinds of systems, yes. So I, I don't think it's uh, China's not alone, but it's uh, but it has a, I think it has a worse problem, and uh, and it's and it's corrupt not only in the business side, but it's corrupt in a lot of other administrative sides as well. Intellectual property is uh, or theft of intellectual property has been a big issue lately with China. There are some people who say it costs uh, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and and I'm wondering. Uh, so I, I'm assuming that the Chinese government, if they wanted to crack down on this, they, they certainly could. And the fact that they are not cracking down on this means that they don't feel that they necessarily need to. And, and if I understand it correctly, it's not just stealing trade secrets, but maybe even more troublesome, some would say, is forcing companies to reveal trade secrets in order to get access to China's market. Yes, sir. Uh, that is a very big issue, and um, and it's right at the center of a, of the current debate about China in Washington. And so it's a it's a this has been going on for so long. Uh, we had agreements with China to stop intellectual property rights beginning in the early 1990s. Uh, U.S. and China have had agreements you know, where the Chinese would do this, and of course they never did. Uh, and uh, to get into the WTO, uh, there were uh, the U.S. was the leading negotiator in getting China into the WTO, and the U.S. set up a whole series of uh, of uh, uh, articles in the agreement that uh, required uh, uh, adherence to intellectual property rights and so forth. And it just doesn't happen. And now uh, the Chinese have moved from uh, just you know producing fake uh, uh, Mickey Mouse uh, shirts uh, to uh, something that's really extraordinary, 
uh, where they, uh, of course, the cybersecurity was a big issue for Barack Obama. Uh, President Obama was very discreet in how he talked about China uh, until the last two years of his government. But then by that time, he was so angry with China that he would speak out publicly maybe once a week uh, about one thing or another. And probably the issue he spoke out most about was uh, China's cyber theft of U.S. Uh, business secrets. Uh, we have now reached a point where the Chinese still do this theft and intellectual property, but, uh, but now they're using their uh, foreign exchange reserves uh, to purchase advanced American companies. And with, that, with those purchases, uh, they will get the, what they need to uh, set up the dominant industries in these high technology sectors uh, that the U.S. government fears will happen. And so this is the latest phase and probably the most serious. Uh, and this is why uh, of this kind of development. And this is why the U.S. government seems to be very anxious in stopping this. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's a big feature of U.S.-China economic uh, uh, relations uh, today. But it would seem to me that just even though the U.S. is by far the world's largest economy, that acting alone, that would be sort of difficult, whether it's through whether it's through tariffs or, or various other things that the administration has you know, suggested, that this mm -hmm. is the sort of thing that calls for uh, multilateral pressure, uh, working with uh, a lot of our allies, as opposed to just being some sort of a, uh, a you know, unilateral type of thing that the United States does on its own. You're probably right, um, but it's got to start someplace. And uh, and uh, and if somebody doesn't do it, and of course, there's a lot of pain that goes in, into this type of effort, and the Chinese will retaliate in a whole range of ways. Uh, and so this is a big danger for your economy. Uh, but, the, but the U.S. has defined this now, as the U.S. government uh, has defined this as a national security issue. And when you do that, uh, it looks much more serious. If you say, the, we will be dominated, uh, is the way that it's portrayed in the uh, Trump administration's national security strategy, we, be, we will be dominated uh, by China. And, uh, and so that's a very serious uh, outcome. And so, uh, so the U.S., I think, whether with partners or without, I think is probably going to do something on uh, to restrict China's ability is already doing it actually to restrict China's ability to take over these companies and will restrict other things that uh, that will not that uh, that will seen as enhancing China's uh, headlong advance into these industrial areas that uh, and high technology areas that if they get the dominant position this is seen as very serious for US national security and I would think that this isn't just a U.S. issue, but China, I mean, other countries, I'm sure South Korea and Japan and really countries around the world would be concerned about that. And at some point, you would think there would be enough concern where they could put enough international pressure on China to force it to modify some of these policies. They, yes, uh, except that you have to look at it from the point of view of the companies. Um, the companies, what do they want? Well, they don't want to lose their technological edge, um, but at the same time, they want access to the Chinese market. So there's a lot of complaints. They talk about the complaints that they have for with China's, uh, uh, the Chinese industrial policy and so forth. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're deeply involved with China and they make a big profit in China. And so 
this is where the company loyalty and national loyalty can get mixed up. And, uh, uh, and so politically, where did they stand? Well, let's, let's take a look. We'll see <laughs> when we have this, uh, this pressure, we're going to have this, we're already having this discussion in Washington and I think it's going to get more intense and we'll see where they line up because, uh, uh, because, you know, they're, I mean, if you work for a company, you, you, sure. your, your loyalty is to the stockholders. Yep, and absolutely. so uh, it's a very, very different sort of mindset. That's a good point. I also like to ask you about China in Africa. From what I've heard, China has been investing very heavily in, in Africa, much more so, at least it seems to me, than the United States or really any other country that I know of. And I guess I'm wondering, first off, is that correct? And if it is, why are they focusing so much on Africa? It's not really correct. Okay. And, uh, uh, and they are focusing there because of the, the main push began about 20 years ago. They, they need resources. The Chinese economy is very resource intensive. Uh, and it was very wasteful. It's changed to become more efficient. But in 2010, China used more uh, used four times the amount of oil to advance its economy a certain level than did the United States, and we're not that good about uh, being uh, uh, efficient in using oil, and they use four times as much, and so it was just outrageous, uh, and so they needed and so they had a supply side answer, which is to get all this raw materials from places like Africa, and so they went out. Uh, the government promoted this policy. Uh, and uh, and so they invested in various places to get access to various commodities, including oil. And of course, they try to balance it by encouraging trade and trade takes place and traders come from China. So by 2010, 2012, there were a million Chinese in Africa selling stuff and working on projects and so forth. And so, and they give it a lot of publicity. So whenever a Chinese leader will go to these places, they'll talk about this commitment and that commitment, deals after deals, worth billions of dollars. And, and unfortunately, a lot of it never happens. There are very few people that look at this in detail. There's no detailed study of this. So people like me, you have to be sort of nerdy and look through <laughs> the data. And I, and I, and I do. And, and they're just countless ones that never get finished. And, uh, and so the economists, they have a good economic intelligence unit. They looked at China's investment in Africa pretty thoroughly up to 2015. And they said in 2015, 5% of the foreign investment in Africa came from China. 5% is not dominant. <laughs> no, not hardly. And, and others in Latin America saw the same pattern, 5%. In Asia, uh, the countries around Asia, if you look at the Southeast Asian countries, a lot of talk about this, billions of this, billions of that, billions of the other thing. In 2015, 2016, even more, more recently, it's about 10% if you include Hong Kong. So China and Hong Kong account for about 10% of the foreign investment in ASEAN, in the Southeast Asian countries. So it's not that it's not that overwhelming. Uh, they do a lot of infrastructure work. They, they, they make big shiny things that show up in capital cities. Um, um, we're seeing a lot of this discussion, say, in the, in the Philippines. Now they're trying to win over the Philippines government. And here in the Philippines, Japan is still the leading foreign investor in, in the Philippines, uh, surpassing China and dealing, and dealing with infrastructure, which China is very good at. 
So at the end of the day, uh, I think what you have is that China is a new player. It's a big new player in all of these international venues as an investor, as a builder of infrastructure and financier. Uh, it's a big player. Uh, but dominant? I don't see it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure where it's dominant. And interesting. It's certainly not in certainly not in Africa. Oh, interesting. I uh, let's talk a little bit about China as a growing military power. I mean, of course, the United okay. States still spends a lot more than any other country. I mean, a lot more. But uh, according to the most recent stats I've seen, China is second in the world. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, and it's a it's a healthy second. Yeah. By, it's there's nobody near it, except from the. You know, what are China's military objectives, and and I guess more importantly for the United States, uh, to what extent do you see them clashing with U.S. objectives? Well, I think the Chinese objectives focus around the rim of China. That's their national security area of most concern. Uh, they do have concerns about uh, sea lines of communication and trade, securing those over the longer term. But the, that'll be a longer term process. They're not going to be in a position to do too much about that uh, very quickly. And they don't, they're not crashing in doing it. So they're building up their Navy. And maybe in 10 years, they'll have a Navy that can help them a lot in the Middle East and so forth to uh, to secure their sea lines of communication. But right now, uh, and this has been the case for some time, uh, they can't do that. They're, they're under the control of other countries, particularly the United States, and India is there, and so forth. So, uh, so it's really around the rim of China that you see the problems. And here, uh, uh, they boil down to they want better security around there for them, around their periphery. And this security is challenged by these other powers, uh, but individually, these powers really aren't too serious a challenge for China. Uh, The main problem is that the United States backs these powers, and the United States has a big presence around the rim of China. And so the U.S., so that's where we're seeing the rub. It's it's right around the eastern and southern rim of China uh, where you see this uh, tension uh, with the Chinese wanting the U.S. to back off, uh, to go back, and the Americans saying, if we go back, our allied structure in the region will diminish and probably end. Uh, and uh, and we don't know what this outcome will be, except that it will be in Asia, uh, probably dominated by China. And in Asia, dominated by China is something that the United States uh, has this view on, in, in my judgment, historically. And that is the United States doesn't want a, a big power to dominate Asia uh, that if this power is hostile to the United States. Uh, we learned this lesson in Pearl Harbor with Japan, and we don't didn't want this to repeat itself. And so in the Cold War, we had this containment system to, in Asia to prevent this from happening. And uh, at the end of the day, that was successful, and we won the Cold War. Uh, uh, but now China has emerged as a country that doesn't like this U.S. security presence around its rim. its rim. It never has liked it, but now they're powerful enough to challenge it. And that's the rub right now. Well, now, of course, there are some people who might say, well, isn't this kind of a lot like what the United States did in the 19th century in its own backyard, you know, essentially making itself the dominant power in the Americas? And, and I'm wondering, is this in kind of the Chinese version of the Monroe Doctrine? They say it isn't, but it is, I think. 
Yes, I think it's accurate. And those are the, that was the period of imperialism, and so uh, and and colonialism. And so, if that's the kind of order you want to see in Asia, well, then you'll like it very much. Right, right. Uh, but my sense is that's very that doesn't work with the reality of the countries in the region. China is surrounded by countries that don't want to be dominated by anybody, and uh, and these countries are friends and close partners of the United States and have been for a long, long time. And so, should the U.S. just say, well, we just have to accommodate ourselves to China's dominance of our friends and uh, allies and so forth. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And I guess another difference is to the U.S. in the 19th century is in those re- in that region, there are a number of other countries who are uh, pretty significant economic powers in their own right. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, and, they're, and, and they're pretty good militarily, too. But uh, but it's it's a uh, but that's yes. And so the idea that somehow you have this China centered view of Asia doesn't make sense to people like me and others who are Asian specialists who say, well, wait a minute, we have all these interests with Japan and Vietnam and and the Southeast Asian countries and Taiwan and India. And and we just should say the heck this pack. We should just say, well, that doesn't matter anymore. And and this is all the more hard in the United States. Uh, because we're no longer a Eurocentric country. Uh, the United States has trained, you may not see this where you live, but boy, you see it where I live, and you see it most places in the United States, where in my lifetime, America has become a country with a big portion of Asians uh, because of our immigration policy, which we changed in the mid 60s. And so we have millions of Asians in this country who are, you know, very vibrant. Uh, I mean, I don't want to idealize this, but generally they become very vibrant and active in the society in the United States. And they have very close ties with Asia. Uh, and so um, so the we can't go home. You know, the Yankee can't go home because we we're so integrated now uh, that uh, this just makes it, I think, impossible for us to um pull away. And so so the upshot is we're going to be around and it's a and it's a big issue and we have to manage and it's a big source of tension and how we manage this is going to be very important. Speaking of big sources of tension, uh, I have to ask you about China's relationship with North Korea. Uh, now now as I understand it, China is pretty much the key global supporter of the Kim regime. I mean without them it's it's hard to imagine them being in power. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why they have decided to support North Korea in, in the way that they do and they have for, for many years now. It's a good question. Um, and uh, and they, they, they go back and forth. The elites in China go back and forth and looking at North Korea as a liability and then looking at it as, a, as an asset. And, uh, and so they have a lot of active debate. But at the end of the day, uh, the elite, the government, the people in charge in China uh, want to keep a stable relationship with North Korea. Uh, they, the alternatives are worse for them. Uh, keep in mind that the North Koreans don't like China. Uh, North Korean negotiators always talk to Americans in, in about China in a uh, not always but repeatedly do this in a disparaging way. Uh, they 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 tell they want to deal with the United States because they hate the Chinese is what they'll tell you. Wow. They, 
Now, that, that's coming from the North Koreans, and they're not terribly trustworthy people, <laughs> right. and, uh, and these negotiators. But the uh, but the nonetheless, that's that's what what happens, and the Chinese know this, and so they have this very awkward relationship with North Korea. Uh, but they they need it. They need that stability. The alternative is for them is a unified Korea where the U.S. would have a strong military presence in the peninsula, and this is this would be very bad for China uh, strategically. They want the U.S. They want things to go the other way. They want the U.S. to uh, uh, to get out of the region, and uh, and they want to foster that if they can. And so uh, so this is not their strategic goal uh, now. So they don't want North Korea to collapse, uh, and they don't want, North, but they don't want North Korea to be a big nuclear danger. But that's secondary for them. Uh, it's not not the high priority that it has with the United States. And so we've had this difference with China for a long time. Now we're in a very fluid situation on the Korean Peninsula, and so uh, all actors—the Japanese, and the South Koreans, and the uh, Americans, and the and the Chinese—are all working in a very different way in this very seemingly optimistic time, trying to figure out their interests and, and adjust their, uh, their concerns. But at the end of the day, the Chinese will look for uh, as much stability on the peninsula as they can. And, but of course, they're, they're, I guess they're sort of stuck with, with the Kims. And it, it seems when we're talking about stability, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how stable uh, any, of, any of the Kims really have been, maybe, maybe the first generation a little more so. But I, I would guess that, or maybe not, would they prefer a North Korea that was stable, but ruled by someone who's a little less, I don't know, unstable, if that's, if that's the right way to look at it? Uh, much uh, much less provocative. They would like a, a North Korea. I think the specialists that look at this say they would like a North Korea that would be like China. Sure, that be makes an sense. authoritarian country that uh, that's concerned for the welfare of its people and is developing itself and is uh, a stable and strong country. That's what they want. And I guess also another thing I've heard is they have a concern that uh, if they want to keep the regime in power, because if it collapses entirely, they might be facing a massive refugee crisis as well. The refugee crisis gets attention, but I think the main issue is they don't want a unified Korea with a U.S. presence. And on that, they're certainly uh, absolutely united with, with, uh, with the Kim regime. In that sense, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one Final question I have for you. I, I'm sure well, you, you know the 20th century. Oftentimes, it's been called the American century, and I think with good reason, uh, given uh, America's development and rise as sort of the global superpower. Some people are saying now, well, the 21st century. This is almost inevitably going to be the the Chinese century. People look at their growth and just how many people there are in China and how much they still have of their native talent and resources to develop. And I'm wondering, how likely do you think that is? I mean, do you see at some point in the not-too-distant future China supplanting the U.S. as the world's leading economic power? It's certainly going to be the leading economy in the not too distant future. Um, using normal uh, uh, ter- terms, China will be have the higher GDP than the United States. I think within this decade, probably within the next five years, and so uh, so get ready for that. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're the leading power of the world. I uh, I have views on this. Uh, why does a country become the leading power of the world? 
there are many different things that come into play, uh, but uh, it ha- leadership usually involves doing risk and costs that other powers can't or won't do. And here, China just doesn't do this. Uh, China is not ready to, to do the risks and costs of international leadership. And they show this repeatedly. They want to do a win-win type of approach that doesn't cost them things. They're very focused on their own economic well-being and their own development. So it'll be that kind of an order uh, where the great power really isn't prepared to do very much uh, to help others, except where they get some tangible benefit for themselves. And so this is a, uh, I don't think the other nations of the world will find this particularly attractive. So I'm not sure they'll be moving in that direction. The constraints on China, though, have to be taken into account. We already talked about their extensive domestic preoccupations. Uh, China is not that generous, uh, uh, and, and it's because they have all these internal preoccupations. They have to pay, have money to deal with those sorts of things. And so uh, they, they just don't give a lot of aid. And uh, when they give something and they, uh, they finance something, they want to get paid back. And this is, uh, and they do get paid back, uh, and they work hard at this. And so, uh, uh, one just small point here: Did you know that China still receives foreign assistance? Really? Uh, they get about six billion a year in foreign assistance from various sources. Wow! So, uh, so we're dealing with that kind of a country. Uh, but the uh, the main point I wanted to get at is that China will not be a dominant power in the world until it's stable in Asia. Uh, It's surrounded by countries in the most uh, important areas of its periphery, on its east and its south, with whom it has poor relations. It's been working at improving relations with these countries and free to do so for about 30 years. And they've made mediocre progress. They really haven't done very well. And so my argument is, so long as China is surrounded by these difficult countries and difficult situations, and we've already touched on North Korea, and we have uh, South Korea, and then we have Japan, we have Taiwan, and we have India, and we have the countries of Southeast Asia. Uh, They make progress with some, then they fall back with others. And so it's a very mixed, uh, they're not secure there. And until they become secure in Asia, they're really not going to be able to throw their weight around easily in world affairs. And so, uh, and this is not going to happen easily. I, when, when I talk to people about this, I say, remember European history. Some, of, some people don't remember European history or never had it, but it's important to think about it here. Uh, in Europe in the 19th century was characterized by the rise of Prussia, which eventually became Germany. And uh, this was not like the U.S. rise, where we didn't we had oceans and and friendly neighbors uh, to the north and south. This was surrounded by countries that didn't like them, and so they needed to be very careful on how they went about unifying their country and becoming powerful. And they eventually did, but they fought a lot of wars in the process because these countries didn't like them and, and opposed them in various ways. And so that's where China is. They're like Prussia trying to rise up and they don't have a Bismarck who wants right. to accommodate the world. They, they have a very self-righteous view of themselves, which is uh, they don't accommodate. Uh, they, they're just, uh, they're not, they're out for themselves. And so this is a, a difficult thing for them. And it's a difficult thing for the United States because the U.S. is the big power in the region other than China. Right. Is that, I, I almost wonder if that's inherent to their 
political system, if they can actually, if it's realistic to expect them to achieve that internal stability and having people in the region not hate them as long as they have the type of governing structure that they have? I'm not sure, uh, but that's a very good point. I, um, um, but it's, it's the, the self-righteousness does have its uh, roots uh, in Chinese history, perhaps. Some people have told me this, but the Communist Party enhances this because they see this as part of their legitimacy. The Chinese Communist Party feels uh, that they can't uh, acknowledge to the people that they've made mistakes in foreign affairs. And so they never do. They never have acknowledged making a mistake in foreign affairs. And since they have a system that doesn't change and you know, have elections where uh, others could come and say your policies are wrong and should change, that just never happens in the Chinese system. Uh, then you have this perpetuated view, which is they have a very effective internal security and um, propaganda apparatus. And all people in China generally believe that, yes, they, they're right in foreign affairs all the time. Uh, and uh, and it's a it's a very peculiar sort of thing, uh, but it's amazing. It's amazingly effective, and so people in China generally feel that they're uh, if there's a problem with another country, it's certainly not China's fault. <laughs> it, it's somebody else's fault, right. and it's either that other country. Uh, they often blame the United States under these circumstances, and so this is a uh, so how do you de- how do the, how is a government like that going to deal effectively? with these very nationalistic neighbors with, with, with whom they exist. And I think it's going to be not pretty. Uh, it isn't pretty. And I think that will continue. This tension will continue. All right. Well, with that, we will close. Uh, Robert Sutter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We do hope you like what you heard and that you will. Last reminder, I promise, fill out that Libsyn listener survey, survey.libsyn.com slash politics, guys. you got to be so sick of me saying that. I promise this is it. But anyway, survey.libsyn.com slash politics, guys. And again, the URL will be in the show notes. And of course, your support is what keeps us going. We truly do appreciate it. And so if you'd like to help us out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support, or you can just go to politicsguys.com and you will see the Patreon or PayPal links there in the menu. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing our episodes. That would be great. Word of mouth, of course, is the best advertising. We really do appreciate it. And we also appreciate it if you could leave a review or rating of the show on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, I can speak, really. (laughs) If you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. It's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.